0: You are listening to CGSW on 90.9 FM in Calgary on Treaty 7 Territory. Today, in honor of the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington this year, on August 28th, we'll be looking at Martin Luther King Jr. Beginning in the 1930s, the annual celebrations that commemorated the 1834 abolishment of slavery in Canada evolved into a series of annual festivities organized by Walter Perry from 1936 to 1967. According to the Niagara Independent, a parade, speeches, and award ceremonies were among the many activities that visitors from across Canada and even the United States would swarm to in southern Ontario. The Windsor Star quotes the local filmmaker Preston Chase who described his town's celebrations as transcending races and providing what he describes as a welcome break from Jim Crow for black America. As he continued, their civil rights leaders could openly speak to diverse crowds without disruptions. There were no horses. There were no hoses. There was none of that stuff going on in Windsor at that time. One of these visitors was a young Martin Luther King, Jr. He first visited Windsor in 1953 as a young preacher, using the celebrations to connect with other freedom fighters. Dr. King held Canada in high regard. Years later, he took part in the 1967 Massey Lectures, hosted by CBC and sponsored by the University of Toronto's Massey College. As found on the official CBC radio website, King described Canada as the North Star during the years of slavery, with the Underground Railroad linking the two nations together. He also described Canada as heaven. A flattering portrait of Canada, yes, but it also glosses over some harsh realities. Bear in mind that in the 1960s, the residential school system was still rampant, and groups like Black, Asian, and Jewish Canadians also faced discrimination. Writing for the Globe and Mail, John Ibbotson believes events like the March on Washington forced Canadians to reflect on their own nation. One notable reform includes Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson introducing the point system for choosing immigrants in 1967. This removed harmful generations long policies that barred non-white immigrants out of Canada. Racism has not disappeared in Canada, but we have taken our own steps in the past 60 years to live up to King's dream. This is one of many reasons figures like Martin Luther King continue to stand out in our minds today. We remember the image of him standing at the podium in front of the Lincoln Memorial 60 years ago preaching to the audience about his dream. It was a dream that was not just relegated to America, but to all corners of the world. On Historical Figures, Icons, and Others, we'll explore Martin Luther King's rise as a civil rights leader and his role during various campaigns, particularly the March on Washington. Martin Luther King Jr. was born on January 15, 1929, in Atlanta, Georgia, into a religious middle-class family, with both his father and maternal grandfather being Baptist preachers. In his book, Martin Luther King Jr., John A. Kirk mentions that black ministers were among the largest representatives of the tiny black middle class in America. Unfortunately. As Peter J. Ling reminds us in his book, also called Martin Luther King Jr., this comfortable upbringing did not shelter young King from Southern racism. Once he started attending a segregated grade school, the parents of some white friends prohibited their children from playing with him. After receiving a bachelor's degree in sociology at Morehouse College in 1948, King would study theology at Crozer Theological Seminary in Pennsylvania from 1948 to 51. According to Thomas F. Jackson in his book, From Civil Rights to Human Rights, King would learn Gandhi's philosophy of nonviolent protest during his tenure at Crozer. This would have a profound impact on his future work within the civil rights movement. He would receive his doctorate degree at Boston University in 1955. It was during his tenure at Boston where he met his future wife, Carita Scott. The two would marry in 1953. Kirk notes that in 1955, King had been a pastor for the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama for 15 months. When he was thrust into the civil rights movement. You may recall the story when, on December 1st, Rosa Parks famously refused to give up her seat to a white passenger on a Montgomery bus, leading to her arrest. E.D. Nixon, a former president of local NAACP organization, an acquaintance of Parks, called for what would become the Montgomery bus boycott. This would protest segregation on public transportation. King would step up as the leader of the boycott. According to the History Channel's website, the bus boycott lasted from December 5th, 1955 to December 20th, 1956. During that time, black citizens either carpooled or walked to work. This forced the city to end its mandate on segregated public transportation. King's leadership during the boycott received wide recognition, beginning his years long devotion to civil rights. In 1957, King helped form the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization founded to provide leadership for the growing civil rights movement. According to Kirk, the SCLC was formed before the end of the bus boycott, intending to capitalize on the Montgomery Campaign. Over the next several years, King remained involved with the SCLC and established himself as a skilled public speaker. He spoke at the 1957 gathering known as the Prayer Pilgrimage, which marked the third anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education's Supreme Court ruling which deemed school segregation as unconstitutional. While the gathering was originally intended to push President Eisenhower for further progress on school desegregation, it would eventually focus more on seeking guaranteed voting rights. Despite a rather disappointing audience turnout, Ling points out that King's speech earned him further recognition, with reporters quoting his line, "'Give us the ballot, he was also involved with campaigns such as the Albany Movement in 1961-62. It was unsuccessful due to being overly ambitious, and tried to tackle segregated transportation, public accommodations, employment, and voting rights, according to Jackson. However, King believed the campaign was a learning experience for what was to come in 1963, a turning point not only for himself, but also the civil rights movement. The Birmingham campaign commenced on April 4th of that year, utilizing sit-ins, boycotts, and demonstrations. In addition, King was familiar with the city's police commissioner, Eugene Connor. Lynn explains that Bull Connor, as he was known, was a staunch supporter of segregation and did not believe in racial equality. Kirk mentions that right from the get-go, the campaign was faced with hostility from Connor and a rather dismal attendance by black participants in the demonstrations. In addition, when insufficient progress was made, school aged children joined the crusade, many being arrested and filling up the jails. Kirk writes that King was jailed on April 12th on Good Friday, along with the 50 demonstrators that marched from Sixth Avenue Baptist Church to City Hall. It was during his imprisonment that he composed his famed Letter from Birmingham Jail. According to Ling, the letter emphasizes King's adherence to the principles of nonviolent protest. The letter describes such methods as necessary to force negotiation for an unresolved community issue through initiating what the letter describes as a crisis, and promote tension. While praising the letter as eloquent and thoughtful, Kirk also points out it did not receive recognition until later. It held new meaning when the peaceful protests turned violent, with police clashing with black citizens. The most harrowing moment of the campaign was when Connor ordered fire hoses and attack dogs to be used against the protesters the Birmingham crisis gained national media attention and outrage, further bringing the civil rights movement to the forefront. Instead of suppressing the movement, the episode only brought greater momentum, paving the way for the March on Washington in August. Let's go back in time for a bit to 1941. A black trade unionist named A. Philip Randolph planned a march protesting both the exclusion of Black Americans from defense industries and the federal government's New Deal programs. For a refresher, the New Deal in the United States was a series of economic programs funded by the American government and was intended to boost the economy during the Great Depression by bringing relief and employment. Such reforms included the introduction of Social Security. According to Jackson, the New Deal technically promised economic security for all, but ultimately favored white middle-class and working-class men and their dependents. Naturally, this did not sit well with black Americans, including Randolph, but a day before the event, President Franklin D. Roosevelt met with Randolph and agreed to issue Executive Order 8802 which Kirk describes as forbidding discrimination against workers in wartime industries, and establishing the Fair Employment Practice Committee to enforce this. As a result, the march ultimately never went forward. However, according to the History Channel's website, Congress cut off funding to the committee in the mid-1940s, and it dissolved in 1946. It would be another 20 years before the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was formed to take on some of the same issues. Sure, the American economy was booming after the Second World War to unprecedented levels, but it didn't matter. Many black Americans felt like they were excluded from enjoying this prosperity and continued to feel left behind by their own country. This reignited Randolph's interest in forming a march years later in the early 1960s when unemployment among black Americans was high. He teamed up with King recognizing his charisma and appeal. After the Birmingham campaign, the two men put their heads together and planned for what would become the 1963 march on Washington. According to Ling, King recognized that combining his vision of a march for freedom with Randolph's vision of a march for jobs would greatly benefit both causes. Both recognized the year 1963 coincided with the 100th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln signing the Emancipation Proclamation, which took steps towards ending American slavery during the Civil War. One of the major hurdles of organizing the march was seeking approval from the Kennedy administration. From the beginning of his presidency, John F. Kennedy appeared reluctant to support the civil rights movement. That's not to say he was unsympathetic to the struggles of black Americans. In fact, according to the official website of the JFK Presidential Library, he did show public support for desegregating public schools and workplaces. But, Kennedy won the 1960 election by a rather slim margin so he was careful not to alienate Southern Americans and politicians. As a result, he was slow to bring in any new laws that directly combated segregation. However, 1963 was also a turning point for Kennedy and his approach to civil rights. Kirk explains that after witnessing events like the Birmingham riots and Governor George Wallace's futile attempt to bar black students from enrolling into the University of Alabama, Kennedy realized action had to be taken. He delivered his famous televised speech, declaring his support for the civil rights movement. As Jackson quotes, Kennedy declared civil rights to be a moral issue, recognizing that addressing discrimination was key to maintaining a peaceful nation and promote the American ideal of freedom. Kennedy announced that a civil rights bill would be introduced to Congress, which would desegregate public facilities, education, and, according to the JFK Presidential Library, provide federal protection of the right to vote. This would later become the 1964 Civil Rights Law. Even with this in mind, Kennedy was reluctant to support a march, still fearing that any incidents of violence could hinder progress on the Civil Rights Bill in Congress. However, civil rights leaders like King and Randolph insisted on the march. Randolph declared to Kennedy that the Negroes are already in the streets. If they are bound to be in the streets in any case, is it not better that they be led by organizations dedicated to civil rights and disciplined by struggle rather than to leave them to other leaders who care neither about civil rights or nonviolence? Kirk points out that the other leaders Randolph referred to was figures like Malcolm X who endorsed aggressive and violent forms of protest. King and his comrades often used Malcolm X, among others, to demonstrate the less desired alternative for white folks if their moderate approach to civil rights was not accepted. Ling also explains that by 1963, the major civil rights organizations recognized the importance of gaining support through various demographics, including non-black Americans. Leaders recognized that interracial fellowship was essential to maintain a peaceful march. After much hemming and hawing, the Kennedy administration allowed the march to go forward. As Ling describes, the March on Washington was to consist of a parade down the National Mall to the Lincoln Memorial and be comprised of speeches and music. According to the History Channel's website, Randolph started off the event with his own speech. Other speakers included primary march organizer, Bayard Rustin, NAACP president Roy Wilkins, John Lewis of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, civil rights veteran Daisy Lee Bates, and actors Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee. Ling points out that unlike the marches of the 1950s, the March on Washington had solid attendance numbers, with police estimating the noon crowd at the mall to be over 200,000, with nearly 25% of those in attendance being white. With television still being relatively new in 1963, King utilized news coverage to display this interracial harmony with individuals from all walks of life showing their support for the civil rights movement. The performers and speakers reflected the diversity of the march, comprising of singers like Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Mahalia Jackson. Of course, the shining moment of the march was King's speech, I Have a Dream going down in the history books as one of the greatest American speeches in history. Ling points out that while black attendees recognized that the speech was what he describes as a virtuoso rendition in a familiar style, he mentions it was unlike anything white audiences had heard before. Delivered in an almost song-like voice, the speech showed the world that King was as much an activist as he was a pastor. Evoking Biblical Imagery According to Jackson, King decried police brutality and how many black Americans were confined to living in ghettos. Ling notes how King called for Americans to live up to the promise of freedom and democracy made a century ago, urging them to leave behind segregation in favor of racial justice and harmony. According to History.com, While the speech itself was written beforehand, the part we remember the most fondly was actually improvised. Mahalia Jackson, standing behind King on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, called out to him, Tell them about the dream, Martin. And with that, King declared that he dreamed that one day Americans would fully live up to its promise that all are created equal. David J. Garrow quotes these famous excerpts in his book bearing the cross. King dreamed of a day where states like the Mississippi, plagued by racial injustice and oppression, would become a haven of freedom and equality. Most famously, he dreamed that his children would not be judged by their skin color, but by their character. He closed a speech envisioning a day where everyone from all walks of life, whether they be black or white, Jew or Gentile, Protestant or Catholic, would join hands in harmony. At the end, he was met with thunderous applause. After the March on Washington, King and his comrades met with President Kennedy at the White House. While Kennedy still emphasized that the Civil Rights Bill would continue to face an uphill battle in Congress, he was nevertheless pleased that the event had proceeded peacefully and, as Garrow describes, ended as a celebration and public relations bonanza for both the movement and for Kennedy's civil rights program. Both the March on Washington and Dr. King's speech was widely acclaimed. Kirk highlights the various viewpoints on King's role within the march. Referring to the speech, SCLC's Andrew Young declared that the march transformed what had been a southern movement into a national movement Fred Shuttlesworth described King's words as divine intervention stating that was God preaching the gospel to America through King it helped to change the mindset of America the March was peaceful thanks to Bayard Rustin's meticulous planning Proving that unrest during the campaigns in the South, such as Birmingham, was the result of not black citizens protesting, but the result of white leaders forcibly suppressing said protests. Rustin declared that, The march made Americans feel for the first time that we were capable of being truly a nation, that we were capable of moving beyond division and bigotry. Of course, King's speech cemented him as the leading black spokesperson of the nation. With that said, Martin Luther King's work within the civil rights movement was far from over. Perhaps his greatest success following the March on Washington was the Selma Campaign in Alabama. As described by the Encyclopedia Britannica, the campaign started off extremely turbulent. On March 7th, 1965, a civil rights march, which Dr. King organized but was not part of, turned violent when state troopers attacked participants, an event now known as Bloody Sunday. However, this did not discourage King, and he pushed for the march to commence only two days later. He and the marchers set out across the Pettus Bridge where they were once again met by straight troopers, forcing them to turn back. Finally, President Lyndon Johnson overrode Governor George Wallace's push to prevent another march and used the federal troops and Alabama National Guard to protect the protesters on March 21st, allowing the famous march from Selma to Montgomery to commence. Johnson signed the 1965 Voting Rights Act five months later. Unfortunately, this would arguably be King's last major victory for the civil rights movement. While King remained popular among black Americans after 1965, his ongoing commitment to nonviolent protests did not resonate with the emerging black power movement. Rooted in the aggressive protest tactics of Malcolm X, Kirk describes black power as rejecting the racial integration envisioned by civil rights leaders, promoting nationalism, separatism, and self-defense among black Americans. King would attempt to broaden his base by joining the anti-Vietnam War movement while forming a multiracial coalition to address the economic struggles of black Americans who are powerless amid social and political developments such campaigns during this time included the 1965 to 66 chicago freedom movement which aimed to end housing segregation in chicago during this time king had faced bouts of depression and discouragement stating that his christian faith is what kept him going Garrow quotes king who stated sometimes i feel discouraged and feel my works in vain but then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. His final speech, I've been to a mountaintop at Mason Temple in Memphis, seemed to eerily foreshadow his death the following day. According to Kirk, King declared that he had seen what he called the promised land. While he stated that he might not arrive there with his followers, he assured each and every one of them that they would one day arrive themselves. He declared that he witnessed the coming of the Lord. The next day, on April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was shot by James Earl Ray when standing on the second balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. After being rushed to the hospital, he was declared dead at the age of 39. According to Kirk, the news of his death unleashed anger within black America, with 130 cities across 29 states confronting racial disturbances. As Kirk points out, this violence fulfilled King's prophecy that I mentioned earlier. If white America did not accept the moderate and peaceful form of protest, they would be confronted with the alternative. Although the civil rights movement effectively ended with King's death and black America facing an uncertain future going into the 1970s, his towering legacy did not diminish. Most notably, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill in 1983 to declare Martin Luther King Jr. Day to be a national holiday on January of each month. According to Ling, Carita Scott King Hope that the holiday would renew the American interest in nonviolence. Martin Luther King Jr. remains an iconic figure, not just within America, but within world history. Events like the 1963 March on Washington brought the grievances of black Americans to national and international tension to a greater extent than ever before. The impressive attendance numbers and television viewership for the march showed that many americans and others around the world supported civil rights and equality regardless of their skin color in doing so king established himself as the most visible spokesperson for black civil rights in america with that said king's relatively brief life and tenure within the civil rights movement leaves many unanswered questions. What else would he have achieved had he lived longer? What would he think of today's world? Would he have revitalized the waning civil rights movement? These answers can only be left to the imagination. Martin Luther King is someone who continues to fascinate and inspire. In many respects, we are still a long way from achieving his dream. Events like the murder of George Floyd in 2020, only one of countless victims of police brutality, is a painful reminder that racial injustice remains in society. With that said, the Black Lives Matter protests that followed and the calls to action are a reminder that everyday people are still working towards Martin Luther King's dream. Like many of the great historical figures, Martin Luther King's legacy will continue to be reexamined, reshaped, and reimagined as the world continues to change. Nevertheless, it is a legacy that remains with us decades later, and will remain with future generations. Thanks for tuning in to Historical Figures, Icons, and Others. Stay tuned for future episodes.